1: Hi everyone, it's KDT, Buildup's Program Coordinator. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, Nick is talking with Sarah Shanley Hope. Sarah is the Vice President of Brent and Partnerships at the Solutions Project, following seven years as the organization's first Executive Director. Under Sarah's leadership, the organization transformed its mission and culture to center racial and gender equity, launched the field's first and only award-winning intermediary climate and equity fund, and grew a celebratory, collaborative, and inclusive movement for 100% clean energy. Sarah has held executive or leadership roles at the Alliance for Climate Education, Green for All, Cargo, and Best Buy over her 15-plus years of experience in brand strategy and social change. She has raised and helped deploy more than $50 million in support of a racial equity and climate solutions agenda over her tenure in the field. Sarah's work has been featured in a range of outlets including the New York Times, People Magazine, and The Daily Show. She has spoken about the vision, strategies, and stories of change at the intersection of climate solutions and racial justice as part of TEDx Mid-Atlantic Climate One, the Social Venture Network, and Bioneers. And with that, here is Nick's conversation with Sarah Shanley.
2: Hi, Sarah. I am so excited to have you joining us on the nonprofit buildup today. Thank you so much, Nick. Happy to be here. Yeah, of course. I think it's going to be a tremendous conversation. And to get us started, can you tell us about the Solutions Project, your role there, and the Solution
3: Project's immediate priorities? Absolutely. It's an honor. So the Solutions Project funds and amplifies grassroots climate justice solutions all across the United States, really focusing on those created by Black, Indigenous, immigrant, women, and other people of color-led organizations. And then my role as VP of Brandon Partnerships is on the amplify side of that fund and amplify equation, So I support our frontline grantee partners and the larger movements for a green economy that both the Solutions Project and our grantees are a part of, with media capacity and culture strategies that are really focused on changing the narrative around climate solutions. And frankly, those solutions come from the most impacted communities. We're really here to disrupt the assumptions, I think, in philanthropy, across government policymakers, and even in the media that rarely look to communities of color and frontline communities as not just the closest to the problem, but also the source of the most innovative solutions in addressing the climate crisis. And that's really our immediate priority is to make good on those opportunities right now, for climate justice solutions that are created in frontline communities to become the standard all across the country. The White House has made a major commitment to put our government to work on behalf of what the people actually want, which is affordable clean energy, reliable public transit, good green jobs, and healthy places to live. And those are exactly the kinds of impacts and the results of the innovations that our frontline grantee partners have been creating for decades. And now with the Justice40 initiative at the federal level, it's a huge opportunity to yeah, really scale what we know works. So everything you said is so intriguing
2: and I want to drill down on so many things that you shared. I love how you're talking about disrupting assumptions, and that's really how you all approach the work. I want to go back to what you first started with was grassroots climate justice solutions. Can you explain what that looks like, how that might be different from climate solutions that we see day-to-day, the typical approach to solving climate issues and problems that are coming up, what makes something grassroots? What makes it be climate justice oriented?
3: I love this question. I appreciate it. And I'll respond with like the specific story of the Solutions Project and our founding. The first part of your question around like What is not a climate justice solution is really a much more top down technical, like policy focused solution. And that is what is dominant in the environmental sector. It's what is most funded, like literally 99% of US climate philanthropy is not focused on equitable and just transition solutions. And so When we started at the Solutions Project, I make this joke, there were more white guys named Mark than any other demographic, Mm -hmm. and their vision, which was powerful and grounded in the science and the economic reality, is that 100% clean, renewable energy was possible and really where we needed to go in the sector. And that alone is not enough. It's important to have the technical solution and that vision, but without that big technical solution being grounded in the vision, the strategy, I mean, literally just like the community organizing power that is required to change laws, to change culture, to actually put a technological solution like solar panels into practice and into a scaled implementation through infrastructure that all happens at the local level. And so grassroots, defining grassroots, is neighbor to neighbor. It's literally at the source, on the land, that is lived on, stewarded, really the foundation of community. And it's not just pollution and climate change that disproportionately affects communities that are Black, Indigenous Asian American and Pacific Islander, Latinx, those are also the same communities that are disproportionately affected by police brutality and voter disenfranchisement, all of these other critical crisis level problems that all of our country is facing, hopefully reckoning with right now. And that philanthropy is frankly in the business of working to address That all makes a lot of
2: sense. And it's about centering the voices of those who are directly impacted and making sure that they are leading the conversation, a part of the conversation. And it sounds like your organization, the work that you're doing is doing exactly that. And that all really resonates. When we're talking about the impact on communities of color, and I'd love to hear more about that intersection of race and climate and just the inequities that are there and just hear more about what does that look like for communities of color? How are they impacted?
3: Yes. So the impacts of pollution first and pollution for those that are not in the public health or environmental justice space, pollution is everything from like Truck exhaust or car exhaust, if you're in a neighborhood that has freeways or is a major transport um, location, pollution is not just air pollution, but it's also water. So, you know, I think everybody knows still the story. Six years later, Flint, Michigan, the lead in the pipes is still there. You cannot drink the water there because of the pollution and other kinds of pollution that create brownfields in our, not just urban centers, you're seeing even in rural communities where pesticides and industrial chemicals and pollution from kind of status quo agriculture is literally killing life in our land, in our soil, And so all of those impacts are disproportionately affecting the health and health in terms of cancers and asthma. And in Flint, I mentioned before, in terms of the impact of lead in the water, cognitive and birth defects that are disproportionately impacting communities of color, Black and indigenous in particular communities. And then people's lives are lost, literally, The foundational research that our work around 100% clean renewable energy is based on from Stanford University shows hundreds of thousands of lives lost every year because of this pollution. And of course, the majority of those lives in Black and Indigenous, Latinx, and other communities of color. And then that's not even talking about climate crisis. We think of Hurricane Katrina. We think of Hurricane Sandy in New York, These huge climate exacerbated events, not to mention the fires and the floods and the droughts, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico as well, and the impact there, again, in overwhelmingly majority communities of color and working-class communities, lower-income communities. And so, again, the disruption there is, it's not like... (laughs) You know, Black and Indigenous communities haven't experienced disproportionate impacts for centuries based on our economies rooted in slavery and in colonization. So the disruption today is an assumption that a charity model where white saviors or corporate technology or philanthropy is coming in to save the day because Black and indigenous communities don't know how to save themselves. Like that is just as racist as the disproportionate impacts, making policy decisions, making corporate decisions, knowing these results. 80 plus percent of the communities that are closest to coal-fired power plants are African American and Black communities in this country. And that is a direct correlation to increased cancers. So yeah, I could speak on this for a very long time, and I'm grateful to have the respect and relationships with our grantee partners that are way more knowledgeable than me to share this with you today. But yes, it's powerful, I think, for everyone, even if you're not in an impacted community to not only learn about the negative consequences and impacts, the problem, but also that these are the same communities closest to the problem, first to the solution that have the innovations in the climate solutions that, frankly, everyone in the United States from poll after poll after poll wants. And so how do we really reorient those in the sector that care about climate action, that care about democracy, that care about environmental health, reorient those resources, not through a victim lens, but through a solutionary lens, really investing in those climate justice solutions at the source. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate you walking us
2: through that, Sarah, because I definitely know of the impact that it has on communities, particularly communities of color. I grew up in the South Bronx. Literally, uh, I could walk to Hunts Point and I remember just that area having such high rates of asthma in children and then also there being so many plants with exhaust and waste disposal questions around it. And so I really appreciate the work that you all are doing to highlight the existence of these things, and then the correlation between why are they in these communities, particularly communities of color, and look at the impact that it's having on these communities, and then doing something about it. Mm -hmm. You also talked about that shift, right? Shifting from this idea of charity model, where there's a white savior type of model, where they're coming in and saving communities of color, and I like hearing that we're focused more on a justice model and it's not about charity. So in that same space or in that same vein, I want to hear how you all are thinking about advocacy. Mm. You talked about just working with the government and how the White House has been involved in some of the work around climate change and climate justice. What kinds of strategies do you all have around advocacy, about raising your hands and visibility so that communities of color have their voices in the conversation?
3: Yes. I mean, one, I so appreciate you sharing where you grew up in very near Hunts Point in the South Bronx. And I'm curious if one of our grantee partners is The Point, which is based in the South Bronx and has been, they're about to celebrate their 25th anniversary. And the team at The Point, I was actually just on a call with them yesterday, they've been doing this work for 25 years, and it's fighting the bad and being at the forefront of the good. And one example that relates to the other part of your question on advocacy is The Point is a part of a coalition that a number of our grantee partners are in called New York Renews in the state of New York. And frontline organizations, similar, if you talk about Hunts Point has a particular history in terms of environmental justice, in terms of hip hop, in terms of so much. Sunset Park, Brooklyn, another neighborhood at the forefront and at the front lines, has another organization, uh, another grantee partner of ours, Uprose. Buffalo, New York, which is my hometown, has also an environmental justice history with Love Canal and just the industrial pollution that, yeah, was central to the economy in Buffalo. Push Buffalo is our grantee partner there. All of these organizations have been a part of New York Renews. And for the last five plus years, and we've been supporting this work with both grants and media, they've led and won the country's most innovative and bold Climate and Climate Justice Policy in CCLPA, every acronym, of course, in our sector, it's like Mm -hmm. the Climate and Community Protection Act. And that victory two years ago set not only New York State in the lead in terms of 100% renewable energy commitment, but included a 35 to 40% environmental justice target to dedicate public resources, state resources to what we call a just transition. So, investing in those communities like Hunts Point, the South Bronx, that have been disinvested in for decades, and at the same time have borne the brunt of our dirty economy. So, how do you invest there first? And New York Renew's. The point was a part of winning that legislation that dedicated 35 to 40%. And what's powerful is the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, saw that innovation, adopted it as a 40% priority in their campaign, and within the first few days of the new administration, had an executive order called the Justice 40 Initiative that set 40% of all climate and clean energy benefits out of federal policy for environmental justice communities, which is an EPA designated by census track focus. Now, in terms of our advocacy and with our partners now, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, benefits are not the same as direct investments, and they're also important. So our grantee partners, and again, with our support in both grants and media, the HBCU Green Fund, Felicia Davis is another grantee, just released, here's a brief of how the White House can implement on Justice 40 in a way that really prioritizes investments in Black, Indigenous, and other people of color-led organizations at the local level and scaling up, again, these community climate justice solutions. And then we've also launched with some of our other grantee partners, the Justice40 Accelerator, which actually just opened a grant application program today for those BIPOC-led, women-led, grassroots organizations that may not have ever considered applying for federal funding to get not only the philanthropic support to even It's a lot of work to apply for federal government funding. So to have the bandwidth to consider those grants as part of Justice 40, but also get the technical assistance, the peer-to-peer support, and other capacity in order to, again, increase the number of Black, Indigenous, People of Color-led organizations and climate justice solutions that they create. Into the Justice 40 initiative. So we're very much in a movement accountable advocacy position there.
2: Mm-hmm. And it, it really sounds like you appreciate the ecosystem in which you're operating as well. And so when we're talking about advocacy, there's advocacy on a state level, on the federal level, connecting all of those disparate pieces, and then looking at how we invest in organizations and in communities because we're all individuals and organizations comprising this ecosystem alongside government and other organizations. What I'd love to hear a little bit more about, because I don't think we've touched on it yet, and I know it's a part of your work as well, your focus, how are we engaging? How are you all looking at and considering for-profit organizations, yes. for-profit companies? How are you incentivizing them or having them realize their part in this ecosystem? And what does investment look like on their part?
3: Yes, One, you're exactly right. Taking an ecosystem approach is a key, and frankly, it's a feminine view. And so this is where there is continued disruption in philanthropy and in our sector is there is no silver bullet. There is no, let's create a movement or like a movement icon, or even an election. No one's going to save the day. It's about the ecosystem and how do you fit in to the larger space that is moving towards a shared goal. And over history, we stand on the legacy of social movements over decades and generations. So I just want to Reinforce your point that that's a key shift in the mindset for sure, and who's leading this work. And then, in terms of, yeah, thinking about multi sector leadership, that just is part of that ecosystem. And it's so powerful. The solutions project I mentioned, the three white guys named Mark, the reason why I joined the team and was really excited to partner with them is that they already had. A collaborative approach, even if it was homogenous leadership, they had the sense of business, science, and culture coming together. So, one of those marks was Mark Ruffalo, the actor, the Hulk. And so, bringing the power of storytelling and entertainment and culture to the goal of 100% clean energy. The scientist and the businessman, like those were those three. And when I was hired, brought in the community lens. And of course, we've worked with our community partners to bring government also into that ecosystem view. And so, one example I mentioned New York Renews as a storyline here, and we, the Solutions Project part of our role as a national intermediary grant maker that is movement accountable is listening to our community partners about who we can also bring to the table that builds their power. And oftentimes that is bringing business values aligned business behind community leadership. And again, bringing that celebrity cultural power behind community leadership and specifically in New York We had a partnership and still have a growing partnership with the company Seventh Generation. And there are a number of values-aligned corporations that are really asking, how do they put equity commitments into action? And Seventh Generation, their brand (laughs) is an indigenous proverb. And so really working with them, but of course, they're not indigenous-led or their staff, their customer base is not indigenous. And so, working with them to really, with humility and non defensiveness, hear that and bring what they've built, which is incredibly powerful. They're in the Unilever family, they're in my home <laughs> in terms of the cleaning products and when we had babies, you know, diapers and things like that. How do they bring that in support of Climate Justice Solutions? So they've taken out full-page ads and newspapers. They've been a part of lobby days. They've done corporate philanthropy in support. During COVID, they provided product donations to the mutual aid hubs that our grantees created in their communities. There's so many ways that business can bring their power To this, and for the celebrities and the cultural influencers that we work with, there too, it's like, how do you bring your gifts and your assets to the table again in support of frontline community leadership, knowing that that's where the source of innovation is? And you can bring your spotlight there, you can bring your storytelling savviness in support. Mark Ruffalo has played not just the Hulk in terms of a superhero, he's also portrayed everyday heroes in a number of his films, Dark Waters being one, Spotlight being another. And so he recognizes those real heroes when he meets them. And they are always in frontline communities, those communities that are most impacted.
2: When you have been just walking through like that ecosystem, the different actors, and particularly talking about for-profits and businesses, how they can play this role, what's coming through for me is how you've articulated that justice is about restoring power to communities, right? And you're talking about it through climate justice. And I really appreciate just how you're framing this entire conversation, because that really just came through for me that- It's really about how are you centering the community, particularly since they are the ones impacted, how are you centering their voices and making sure that your solutions, your approaches, uh, your problem solving is equitable. And so I know that you have been talking about the work, the approach, we've talked through climate justice, the impact and how we want to involve and make sure that communities are not only involved, but also are taking the lead in the solutions and problem solving. I would love to hear more about your infrastructure within the Solutions Project to be able to do all of this work. I mean, we've talked about it on the state level. We've talked about it on the impacts you're having on a federal level, within organizations, within corporations, businesses, individuals how are you all doing this kind of work? How are you set up and how are you thinking about your governance? What does that oversight look like to make sure that you're on task and you're remaining true to your vision from when you first started all the way through to now? What does your capacity look like in terms of your team? I'd just love to hear more about the infrastructure so that when people listen to this, they can hear how you all have put together your own framework to make sure that you're supporting and advancing the work that you're doing.
3: Mm. Yes. So my first response to your question is, again, The words of our frontline grantee partners coming into my mind, which is that reminder, and this is a Stephen Covey book as well. Like our business friends will recognize like change happens at the speed of trust. And so first and foremost, we understand relationships as probably the most important infrastructure. For an organization, especially a national intermediary grant maker like the Solutions Project, to understand and to have. That's why the ecosystem view is even in our sight, is because of the relationships that we have and attending and cultivating that soft infrastructure. And I would be remiss not to name that. Even though I was hired as the first executive director of the Solutions Project now seven years ago, we have a CEO now, Gloria Walton, who started in October. And she was the CEO of one of our first grantee partner organizations, Scope in Los Angeles. She then joined our board three years before we then recruited her to become our CEO. And her vision around infrastructure is first and foremost understanding that the Solutions Project is a part of movement infrastructure. We are accountable and also an extension to the larger vision and goals and power-building strategies of our now 100 frontline grantee partner organizations across the country. And so it was through the relationships that Gloria came in to lead the solutions project and bringing this vision, which and this experience to the fore. And so, as CEO, the infrastructure she's building at the solutions project, she set a bold vision of $100 million to raise for the solutions project. And this isn't the empire building that most, frankly, the dominant culture of philanthropy and kind of national organizations hold. It truly is understanding the role that the Solutions Project plays within our larger ecosystem. So we're a small and nimble team. When Gloria started as the CEO in October, there were only five staff at the Solutions Project, and we were moving maybe $2 million a year out the door in grants to dozens of organizations. We were also providing between half a million and a million dollars worth of media support. So we have program delivery partners above and beyond our staff who are really experts in earned media and more traditional communications, digital media, and more experimental and new communications. And many other tactics and strategies, working with artists, doing pop culture and celebrity organizing, not to mention training all of our grantees in these different capacities so that they're building their infrastructure and capacity as we grow. And Gloria set that vision from when she was on our board and within her first six weeks on the job, successfully raised the largest grant the Solutions Project has ever received from the Bezos Earth Fund. So raised $43 million over three years, 10 million each year. So 30 million of that is again out the door in grassroots grants, which we have an award, an impact award from the National Committee of Responsive Philanthropy for our innovation and integrity, which is leading the field in trust-based philanthropy. And not only did she move the Bezos Earth Fund to invest at that scale. Again, at the time that they made that commitment of 43 million, we were only a $3 million dollar annual organization. So Gloria's education of the Bezos team and Jeff Bezos himself was really taking, like if you're an entrepreneur and a an venture capitalist, you're not making an investment in an organization based on their current budget size. (laughs) You're making an investment based on the impact and the innovation that you recognize Mm -hmm. in a niche firm. And so she successfully made that case to the Bezos Earth Fund. They made that commitment to the Solutions Project. And she also educated the team along with other leaders in our field to say this is a moment to not only invest in the solutions project and equity through our grant making program and our infrastructure, but to bring in other intermediary grant makers that we work with so that your total giving $151 million is what she was able to really wow. inspire in terms of that first commitment at the level of parity with what. Bezos had already committed to NRDC, $100 million, for example. So the infrastructure that we're building is to be able to respond with speed. Our grantees are responding to every crisis that our country is facing, and they're doing so without the financial support of most of philanthropy, even with that 151 million commitment from the Bezos Earth Fund to climate equity organizations, including the Solutions Project, even with that, it's still less than 1% of the total US climate philanthropy, according to research from the Climate Works Foundation, focused here. And so we have this moment and this need and opportunity. To build not only the solutions projects infrastructure, which our governance includes frontline leadership in both our philanthropic trustees and our board, but it also is movement infrastructure. How do we actually exactly what you said, Nick, like return this traditional power of resources and media and technical expertise? to frontline communities themselves. And frankly, that is what organizations like ours and other foundations and philanthropies, we need to be evaluating ourselves in our success in doing that. Are we moving the money, and in our case, the media, and the momentum behind that ground-up frontline justice, vision, and strategy, and solutions that we know are actually what works the best.
2: Wow, like that's really what I can say after how you've described how you all are setting yourselves up to support your amazing vision, your compelling vision. And so when we talk about infrastructure, I always say that if you don't have a compelling vision and mission, it doesn't make sense to even start to focus on your infrastructure because you're going to be holding up something that's weak and I think when you talk about receiving that $43 million grant with a $3 million budget, that speaks to a compelling vision and mission, right? That speaks to something that's so powerful. You talked about storytelling, being able to tell such a powerful story about that compelling vision that you have that it convinces others to say, I wanna be a part of that and I wanna invest in it. So I think that just starting from that place of having a really compelling vision and mission is so important and critical when it comes to then building out the team, thinking about capacity, which you all have clearly done. And you're talking about Who does what? What roles and responsibilities should folks have on the team? So I really appreciate you just sharing that because, again, I want people to walk away with realizing that you don't have to be a team of 50, 100 people to have this kind of impact. And what you do need to have is that compelling vision and mission, and then be deliberate about how you're building up your organization and framework to support that vision and telling that story. And I could keep this conversation going for a very long time, Sarah. I'm really appreciating just how clearly you're speaking about climate justice, just how thoughtful your organization has been and how you're talking about the work that you all are doing. And I want to ask one question that I ask all of our guests to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn from or about to close us out, what book do you think we should read next, or what artist do you think we should be paying attention to?
3: I love this question, and my response is actually a twofer. I have a twelve-year-old daughter, and for the last five years or so, we have been reading every like teen lit. In her words, post apocalyptic <laughs> series that we can get our hands on because it is <laughs> such a source of inspiration for the courage, the analysis, and the like trust, the spirit centered uh, leadership that's really required in these times. And so the most recent one that we're reading is Tomi Adeyemi, Children of Blood and Bone and Children of Virtue and Vengeance is the second story in this series. And your audience, and you can check this out yourself. And the artist, the author gives a really powerful description of what inspired her to write these books. And it was The Murder of Black Children by police officers obviously getting more and more media attention. It's not a new story, but it's getting more media attention over the last five years, over the last uh, year and a half. And what an artist has the power of doing is bringing those themes and those realities and that trauma and pain that is lived into the realm of story and magic in ways that allow us to transmute and that Phrase is something that I've learned from Gloria, our CEO. Like, how do you transmute that pain and that trauma and that fear and that so often sense that we don't have power, that we can't change the conditions within which we live and work and lead and parent? And, you know, I'm a white woman disrupt that sense that, oh, this isn't about me, or I don't have a role in the transformation that is required. And that is actually about my own liberation. These kinds of stories bring us into that world. And there's so many of these stories. It's not just this current series that we've been doing these series for five years, starting with the Harry Potter (laughs) series. So I recommend these, especially if you are a parent of a probably 8 to 13-year-old. And then the last thing that's more in the work realm, but still like a spirit-centered resource, I also picked Pixie Lighthorses, Boundaries and Protections. For so many executives, and I would say especially women executives in the nonprofit sector, I did not understand what healthy boundaries were. (laughs) I did not have them. I'm still like baby first steps, kind of working on them. And this book has such practical and powerful tools for yeah, what is a healthy boundary? And what are your boundaries? And how do you then have really clear, generative communications with your staff, with your board, with funders, when boundaries are crossed so that we can begin to really develop the capacity. And we don't have this in our sector right now to engage in principled conflict. And the biggest part of the story that I learned from Gloria's communications and leadership with the Bezos Earth Fund is she understood the value of the Solutions Project and the work that our grantee partners do. And from that place of power, was able to say, yes, we're $2 million today, and most of our grantee partners have less than a $1 million budgets, but our value is so much more than this. And in this moment, it would be a boundary crossing. It would be a disservice to our communities and to our value and to our mission, not to ask for what we deserve, which is far more than what philanthropy or government has been investing in our communities to date. And this book helps with that. There's even like scripts and prompts of like, okay, how do you, if you're like a people pleaser like me, how do you like get real with that and come in a way that you can communicate directly and with compassion, but getting your needs met.
2: Those sound like amazing books. So thank you for sharing them. We'll put them in the show notes so that people can take a look at those and add them to their collections as well. And again, Sarah, you have shared such tremendous knowledge and insights about the work that the Solution Projects is doing how you all are approaching the work, how you're centering community and really pursuing justice. And at the end of it, really trying to disrupt the way we think about climate solutions and climate justice. And so I really want to thank you for introducing A framework for how we can talk about climate justice, really putting communities that are impacted at the center of all of that and making sure that we're doing that in an equitable way. So thank you again so much for your time. I think that leaders are going to be able to use everything you've shared and that will allow them to continue to build bravely. So again, thank you so much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at BuildupAdvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.